This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we watch something new in cinemas or on a streaming service and then compare and contrast and connect it with older films, films that we've never seen before, maybe films we just haven't seen in a long time and, you know, thematically connect them. Then, uh, yeah, and we'll have a long talk for the next hour or so about those connections. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook. I'm a freelancer here in Halifax, and you can find me online at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E on Twitter. Yeah, and so we're talking today about Angela Lansbury and Robbie Coltrane, two giants in their field, uh, actors with long careers who sadly have left us late this year, and we thought this was an opportunity to go back and, and visit with a number of their films across two terrific careers. So coming up here on Lens Mirror Ears, we'll, we'll start with Angela going back to uh, something fairly recent and something way back in the 1940s. And welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. Today we are, uh, to start with, looking at the career of the late Angela Lansbury, who most people probably think of as a TV actor who is the star of Murder, She Wrote for many, many seasons, solving mysteries uh, in Cabot Cove, Maine, where uh, they seem to have a higher death rate per capita than Detroit, uh, possibly. But uh, it was kind of the... the, the the kind of genesis of the whole cozy mystery thing, I, I feel like, uh, maybe following the footsteps of Columbo, but that kind of small town, big crime kind of thing that, of course, is still huge today and, and shows like Midsummer Murders and and uh, one I like, Brokenwood, uh, Brokenwood Mysteries from uh, from New Zealand and, and so on. So kind of a pioneer in that regard, but she was well into her career at that point and had been a star of stage and screen for decades prior to that show, hit show of the of the 80s and 90s. And, and such a versatile performer uh, who uh, you know, was a stage actress, could do musicals, could sing, dance, and uh, do straight up dramatic roles, was great in comedy, it really, really could do it all. And, and as we've seen in the films that we're going to talk about today yeah i mean she was really something and i don't know if i fully had grasped the breadth of her career until we started watching some of her films she was born in october of 1925 she died on october 11th this year that was days before her 97th birthday she was born irish and british raised in london but she moved to the united states to escape the blitz her first three film roles were in gaslight National Velvet and the picture of Dorian Gray. So by the time she was 20, she had two Academy Award nominations for supporting actress. Now, I haven't been able to confirm this 100%, but I think that she is the youngest actor to ever get two Oscar nominations, even younger than Saoirse Ronan by the time that she had her second one. Um, I mean, you know, you, we hear about kids and young adults getting nominated for one Oscar and even winning them, but two nominations by age 20, that is... That is bonkers, you know, and she went on to be nominated again and she won a Golden Globe. And like you mentioned on TV, she had a huge following. But I mean, her her career as a theater and film actor was over eight decades. Now, I think the film that I had seen her in first was probably Death on the Nile, which I rewatched not long ago because, of course, there's the remake from uh, Kenneth Branagh. And uh, I really love the original still. I think it's a delight. 
probably her best film over her entire career is The Manchurian Candidate, which is that classic drama thriller, a paranoid thriller from 1962, which, you know, is wild and still very much worth seeing. Uh, of course, she's also known for her kids' films work, you know, with uh, in family movies like Beauty and the Beast. And, and recently, she had a small role in Mary Poppins Returns from 2018, which was was quite lovely. But uh, yeah, I mean, when was the first time you saw her, Stephen? It would have to be Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, which we'll be talking about uh, later on in the program. But but that would have been the first time I've noticed her in, in, in a film. And that was like easily the second or third movie I ever saw when it came out in the early 70s. And I was like four or thereabouts. And I, I love that film. I had the Disney book and record, which told the story of the movie on one side and then had the song Substitutiary Locomotion on the B side. So I, you know, <laughs> singing along with it when I was watching the movie again on Blu-ray, because I, and I, you know, not a song I thought about a ton in the past couple of decades. And yet somehow I knew all the words. So, I mean, that's the beauty of a Disney song. You always uh, it just sticks in the, the, the gray matter of your memory and lurking until it's ready to come out again. I was amazed. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know that bed knobs and broomsticks is one of the more fondly remembered of, of classic Disney films. It was, I think the last film, uh, Walt had already passed on by the time it came out, but, uh, his brother Roy, I think was uh, still alive when that one came out. And I think that was the last film that Roy was associated with before he passed on. So the original Disney brothers, it was kind of the last film of that, uh, dynasty. And we'll be talking about that in the next segment, but, uh, that, that film always stayed with me just the thought of a uh, angela lansbury as a witch fighting nazis this <laughs> is just a you know a pretty indelible uh, image especially for a kid who's four four years old watching uh, watching this stuff but like i say we'll we'll talk about that more and then of course um murder she wrote came along uh and it's not a show i watched faithfully but i did like a good mystery show and it was great to see the parade of of familiar faces from classic hollywood who would show up in in mid parts every week and the story goes is that she uh, did that so that uh, actors of a certain age could get, you know, some union work to keep their health uh, benefits mm. through the union. And, mm -hmm. and that's, that's the story that's uh, been circulating certainly more since her passing. And that's just, just amazing that she would do that for, for these old pros. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. She, she had a, struck quite a figure and she was, you know, a striking, talented actor who could do a lot of different things. She, in her final role, she got a cameo in a new film, which got a very brief one week theatrical release in November, but is expected when it, depending on when you're listening to this, it might be out now, but uh, it's expected to drop on Netflix on the 23rd of December. So in about two ish weeks from when we're speaking now, and that's glass onion a knives out mystery. This is the sequel to one of 20, 19's unalloyed treasures knives out which brought ensemble mysteries in an agatha christie vein very much back to the mainstream and a, in a charming and not so subtle class aware subtext it's great R ryan johnson clearly has a real passion for these kinds of stories and you know knives out was just such a pleasure to watch it was hugely entertaining full of stars full of twists that you didn't see coming and this new movie it's amazing. He's done it again with a bigger, somewhat trashier, and maybe even more <laughs> pop culture conscious mystery, which uh, also has room for a number of unexpected cameos. Of course, we've spoiled the fact that Angela Lansbury is in it, but if only just briefly in a in a hilarious scene early on in the film with uh, our lead, our hero Benoit Blanc, playing a game on Zoom uh, from a bathtub. 
<laughs> which is awesome. But yeah, this time the Southern Gentleman Detective, played by Daniel Craig, having so much fun. He's joining a group of hyper wealthy folks who call themselves the Disruptors, including Tate Kate Hudson, who hasn't been this good in a role in years. Uh, Jessica Henwick, Catherine Hahn, Janelle Monet, Leslie Odom Jr., and Dave Bautista, which, uh, you know, provides this. This is kind of a specter reunion, interestingly enough. And it's on this palatial island locale. All these characters found their fortunes through the grace of a kind of Elon Musk character, a billionaire played by Edward Norton. And they all, of course, have reason to want him dead. Uh, so naturally he's invited all his old buddies back to this island and they're his guests for a murder mystery weekend. And somehow Benoit Blanc has been invited as well. Of course, the question is why and how this happened. There's a lot here that reminded me of the last of Sheila, which is the, an odd little mystery movie from 1973 with James Coburn as this wealthy, uh, man who has is murdered, uh, on and on a yacht. And then it's like, who, who did the killing basically? And Stephen Sondheim scripted that or co-scripted that movie. And he, of course, with Anthony Perkins, with Anthony Perkins. Yeah. And he cameos here as well. Sadly, of course, Sondheim and Lansbury have both passed. But uh, I think that's kind of a delightful final appearance for the both of them. Yeah. What did you make of Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery, Stephen? I really liked it. I, I think maybe a notch or maybe half a notch below Knives Out, the original. I, maybe maybe just because it wasn't quite as fresh as it was the, the first time around, but I, it certainly it wasn't for lack of admiration for the character of Benoit Blanc, who is still a delight, especially, you know, as played by Daniel Craig, who's clearly like having a ball here. And, you know, the, I thought that the twists and turns were fairly effectively juggled throughout you know sometimes i'm a kind of a stickler for for murder mysteries and how they can often go off the rails and this one kind of threatens to throughout the film <laughs> and yet somehow manages to and i think it's certainly all intentional on ryan johnson's part he's i'm sure uh, he had his flow chart covering an entire wall trying to juggle all the characters and their motivations and and what somebody else is doing well, you know, another character's off doing something else, and there's a lot of coordination going on, but it all seems to work, at, at least as far as my feeble brain could figure it out. You know, the, the fact that it kind of tells its story and then goes back and, like the, so like the song, the Beatles song and the title implies, peels back some layers to let us know that there's even more going on than we even realized. And, you know, again, it's, it's, it's one of those films that everybody is having a hard time talking about without spoiling, you know, the, the, I knew that Angela Lansbury had a cameo before I went in. So that wasn't really, and it was early enough in the film that it's not something that, um, you know, the entire film hinges on. So I, I don't know that that's quite a spoiler, but, but there, there is a lot uh, in terms of the characters and what they do and their pasts and their motivations and all that kind of thing that, uh, that you really need to keep a tight lip about. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I'm trying. I will not say very much more about the plot from here on in. Um, but I, I do want to say that I, I think I enjoyed this as much as the first. I hear what you're saying about maybe just slightly less novel, but I just feel like what Johnson has done here is just, if not increase the stakes, increase the scale. And in some ways, that has that makes it fresh again. I love that the the sets, this enormous Greek island. Uh, I love all the cast. I think they're really once again, it, he's done a great job. It's of really casting. perfectly cast, even like down to having uh, Jackie Hoffman just for one scene as uh, Dave Bautista's mom, as Duke's mom. She's, she, I mean, like Jackie Hoffman is such a force of nature, and and yet you know we just get a little bit of her, but she's so perfect for that role. And I, I feel like this is the sort of thing that actors just want to be in, no matter what. Uh, the part turns out to be. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's other uh, very brief appearances by other actors that I won't mention no. their names, but they are 
incredibly recognizable. So so you'll probably get a kick out of seeing them show up. Yeah, I think Jackie Hoffman's in the trailer. So yeah, but um, even, but even roles like uh, like. Actors I wasn't as familiar with, like Jessica Henwick as Peg, who is uh, Kate Hudson's uh, assistant, and and uh, Madeline Klein as Whiskey. I mean, the, and and it's great to see Leslie Odom Jr. here as well. He he was terrific as Sam Cooke in One Night in Miami, and here he's got a, a great character to play with some. He's he's really hard to read right off the bat, and he keeps us guessing. Uh, well, just as everybody else does, but but. It's a particularly fine performance. Yeah. There's a lot of Easter eggs in this film, I think, both yes. uh, in terms of its like cultural uh, nods and, and in-jokes, but also just kind of Hollywood nods and, and jokes towards other films. I don't know if you recognize this, Stephen, but there is a direct costume reference to a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Uh, in a flashback to Magnolia, to what Tom Cruise wore, his character wore in Magnolia. Um, basically, and this, I don't think this is a spoiler. This is just for film nerds and anyone listening to this podcast, is probably oh, sure. a film nerd, but the pay close attention to what Edward Norton's character wears in a flashback to when he and the disruptors first got together. It's like a, a shirt with a vest and it's and his hair is long and tied back in a ponytail it's basically tom cruise in magnolia yeah there's a lot of that sort of thing i'm looking forward to watching it again uh, on netflix it did so well uh, i mean not a shock i mean the first one was a huge hit and the kind of movie that has you know endless repeatability uh in terms of viewing to to try and because uh, you need to go back and did i see what i think i saw you know you have to do that it really pays to, to watch it a second time Netflix have, have toyed with the idea of maybe putting it back in cinemas in the new year, perhaps, or what have you, to see if there's any more interest. But I, but it, you know, I have a feeling that we won't see it around here again. Uh, if you didn't get a chance to see it on the big screen, I think that was kind of it. But uh, at least, at least we got this, and we got Pinocchio for for a brief run as well. Guillermo del Toro's far superior version of Pinocchio. Than yeah, it's really Robert special. Z- Zemeckis one, mm-hmm. uh, and and that. Because of the the work and the animation, the detail, that really needed to be seen on a big screen. So, uh, and again, I'll be watching that again uh, on the streaming service. But I'm finding, you know, these films really need a, a, to be seen at least the first time in the theater. So, it would be nice to see it get a second run at some point. Uh, certainly, I think there are people that would, would happily pay to go see it in the theater again. But uh, I'm not getting my... Hope something for that. Yeah, it's too bad that it was such a limited run. A week wasn't really long enough. In fact, I had been able to see it at TIFF back in September, but uh, wasn't able to get to the cinema to see it again when it ran this time, which really bummed me out because I I, I did so enjoy the, the audience experience of it, not just the way the film looked or the presentation, the production values, but just being in a crowd watching this because it's a great audience film. So I guess what I'd recommend if those of you listening to this want to see it and when it arrives on netflix invite your friends around for a uh, a christmas gathering and some cocktails and uh and dial it up yeah the screening i went to it was like a sunday afternoon matinee and the place was pretty full like it was a pretty big crowd certainly bigger than i'd seen uh, at, at many of the screenings i've been to uh, recently and so you know it, it's it's almost like netflix either knows what it has or doesn't know what it has on its hands it's 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 such a funny business model, but and and at any rate, you know, there, clearly there's there's an audience for it, and uh, 
Uh, especially one that's willing to pay twice to see it. Because <laughs> yeah. I imagine a lot of people will go back and watch it on Netflix to try and pick out all the stuff they missed the first time around. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you're right. Um, so now we're going to go back to some of Angela Lansbury's early work. Now, uh, we really felt like we had to start at the beginning. And here's a film that I had never seen from 1944. It's Gaslight. Somehow I had it in my head that it was a Hitchcock film, one of Hitchcock's that I hadn't watched. But it's not. It's actually directed by George. Cukor, and it's a remake of a British film from a few years earlier. Set in the late 1800s, Ingrid Bergman is Paula Alquist. Her aunt, who was a famous singer, was murdered in her London townhouse, and Paula has been sent to, Indi to Italy to be trained as a singer herself. While in Italy, she meets a man named Gregory Anton, played by Charles Boyer. He's tall and dark and handsome and smooth in a very European way, and they fall in love and get married, and he convinces her to move back to London, back to that vacant townhouse her aunt lived and died in. Now, once there, Gregory, with subtle but increasing intensity, manipulates the naive Paula, undermining her confidence. He makes her doubt her very sanity and her memory. He basically convinces her that she's mentally ill, and it's easy to see how gaslight became the verb thanks to this film. And this is the source of that expression, which gaslight has become in recent years, I think, a very popular uh, expression for, well, a lot of reasons. Now, he hires a housekeeper to take care of the old place, Nancy. And that's played by Angela Lansbury, who is a very fresh face here, rocking almost a theatrically Cockney accent. And then a, an inspector from Scotland Yard enters a story played by Joseph Cotton with a very, a very American accent. I'm not sure if they explain why he's American. But anyway, he, he was a fan of Paula's aunt, the singer, and he's soon interested in Paula as well. And he plays a key role in Paula's belief in herself versus her husband's mean-spirited manipulations. And then there was there's a question of the of, of, of jewels that have gone missing. So yeah, yeah, this is a uh, quite a treat. I think, and I can understand why. You know, when Lansbury showed up in Gaslight, she made quite an impact because she's not in the film a lot, but she is. She does make a, a real impression. Yeah, it's a terrific thriller. It's it's directed by George Cukor. It does feel like a Hitchcock film in a lot of ways. It's a very unusual film for Cukor to make. He he either made these kind of light, breezy female-centered uh, comedies or or pretty heavy melodrama like uh, A Star Is Born, but. A full-on thriller is not really the sort of thing that uh, was his forte, and yet, you know, by treating it as melodrama with the, with all the full psychological implications of it, I think he, he really uh, has a good handle on the material. And Ingrid Bergman is is it's one of her best performances. I mean, she, I, I believe she got the Oscar for it, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, and she's terrific here as the as the singer, as the the talented artist who's comes under the thumb of this um, manipulative and psychologically cold uh, cold man who who has these ulterior motives. And it's uh, I, th I think it holds up rather well uh, all these years later. And I think uh, and Ber Bergman, of course, her presence here makes you think of Hitchcock because, of course, she made. A handful of films with him but uh but she's terrific here and kukor is, is just the director to get this kind of performance out of her i thought yeah no she is she is very good and the whole cast is great i really enjoyed uh, dame may witty as miss bessie thwaites uh, the nosy neighbor the london neighbor yeah who's very dozy and fascinated by the murder that went on in that house she kind of represents like that kind of morbid fascination of the public i think is it boyer or boyer uh, charles i always say boyer okay yeah he's he's amazing uh and and he's terrifying in fact the way he he manipulates paula and just makes her 
kind of doubt herself repeatedly through the course of the film. Yeah, the wardrobe and sets are really impressive. The camera work that looks up a lot. So we see all the ornate moldings in that enormous townhouse. The house actually reminded me a lot of the set of Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak, which he, I guess, just expanded and, and brought the, the red <laughs> yes. into that movie. Well, I'm sure he's a fan of this film. It's, it is the kind of classic psychological gothic melodrama and uh and bergman is 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 so great here because even though she's being manipulated by by her husband and he's trying to convince her that she's losing her mind i mean she, there's always an intelligence behind everything she does in on screen you know that you always get the impression of her thinking of her trying to second guess what uh, is happening to her and to try and you know, hold on to her sanity, basically, you know, as, as, uh, he's trying to erode it and, and it's, you know, just slowly, the film just slowly ratchets everything up until the, the, the big climax. It's, it's, uh, a, a great, uh, example of classic suspense. So on today's Lends Me Your Ears, we're looking at the careers of Angela Lansbury and Robbie Coltrane, who have sadly departed this mortal coil. And we're, we'll, Continue talking about films by Angela Lansbury. We'll save our final segment for a couple of Robbie Coltrane films that you may not have seen. We, I had not seen before. So looking forward to talking about that. But uh, yeah, we went back in time to check out some early work by Angela Lansbury and her we watched her third film, The Picture of Dorian Gray from 1945, directed by Albert Lewin, adapting the Oscar Wilde story. This is a this was a real discovery for me. I really enjoyed this film. Uh, I mean, I'd known the story, obviously, the, the, the sort of myth and, and story of the man whose portrait that he keeps up in the attic ages while he doesn't. And I guess I maybe watched Penny Dreadful, so I knew I wasn't <laughs> entirely unfamiliar with Wilde's story, but I had never read it. And this adaptation is as much a horror movie as anything. Thing I've seen from this era. It's a remarkable film. It does a great job of presenting and exploring the themes of sin and the cost of devoting your life to self-gratification, with the exception of all else. Dorian Gray is a young, kindly, good-looking, and wealthy Londoner in the late 1800s, living in Grosvenor Square in an enormous home full of statues, including an Egyptian cat statue. While having his portrait done by his friend Basil Hallward, he's convinced by the deeply cynical Lord Henry Wotton that only a life in service of pleasure is the one worth living. So Gray takes that to heart, breaking off with his beloved, uh, a singer named Sybil Vane. She's the one here played by Angela Lansbury, who is not in the film long, but she makes quite an impression. Now, the painting, as many know, will take on Dorian's sins of a hard-lived life, the image aging and corrupting while his face remains young and unchanged. I didn't realize how corrupt that image would get. This is a black and white film that when they cut to the painting, when they rarely do, they build up a lot of suspense before they do, but they switch to color, and that makes it especially uh, vivid and lurid. Yeah, usually with a big blast from the orchestra too. Just That's to right. Of, you know, it's, it's uh, Hans Zimmer before there was Hans Zimmer. But, That's right. But yeah. Uh, yeah, anytime they cut to the painting, I think you only see it in color like four times over the course of the film, mm. and uh, it's kind of terrifying because nothing can really prepare you for the sight of it, and it's it's pretty horrific. It is, especially when it you know when it's in color and it's so vivid. And uh, this film feels like it's breaking a lot of boundaries. It came out in 1945. There was a, you know, the, the production code was fully in force uh, at, at, you know, at this period. I mean, the, the, which came into effect in 1934, which limited some of the racier kind of dialogue and um, character motivations and, and certain types of behavior that you could not 
that you just could not show it in a feature film uh, after that period. You know, that's why the pre-code era is such a fun part of Hollywood history, and then those films are, are so treasured today. Uh, this film feels like it's breaking a lot of items in the code, and I'm trying to think. Uh, one thing that uh, occurred around this time is because of the studios, first of all, a lot of their audience were in the fighting forces overseas. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, men and women were, were, were in the forces, uh, either in the Pacific or in Europe. And there was a, a general kind of relaxing of the code to some degree uh, during the Second World War. Uh, I guess maybe some of it perhaps spurred on by uh, Gone with the Wind, which famously, you know, broke the code by allowing uh, Rhett Butler to say, frankly, my dear Scarlet, I don't give a damn, uh, you know, which was oh, so scandalous. But society didn't collapse. Uh, people didn't go wild in the streets. So they, they relaxed the rules a little bit. Uh, during the course of the war. Of course, the war was horrific enough, you know, certainly by letting the movies be a little more mature, it wasn't going to hurt too much. And and I feel like this is the epitome of that slight relaxation of the production code because there's a lot of a lot of innuendo in this film and a lot of things hinted at and a lot of character actions that just would not have been permissible a few years before. And it does it does feel kind of shocking for its time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And they've got this guy named Herd Hatfield playing Dorian Gray. Now, I'm not familiar with his work as an actor. He's astonishingly stone faced, barely cracking any kind of expression, which I think works for the character, which is, you know, we're also focused on his face, which is he's like, like he's carved out of marble, like one of his statues in this, in this house, this enormous house he lives in. But uh, the actor who really runs away with this picture is George Sanders as Lord Henry. He gets all the Wildean Bon Mots, all the outrageous comments about life and society. Uh, you know, I think in famous, most famously maybe is the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Those kinds of things. I, I you know, are just hilarious, but he's just he shoots them out every time he's on screen. Now, I've always associated George Sanders with the voice of Sher Khan from the Jungle yes. Book from when I was a kid. But, I mean, I've seen him frequently since then in, in, in movies like All About Eve and then in this film. And I think that's probably how I'll think about him from now on. He's just so well chosen as this incredibly well-spoken aristocrat who's completely hollowed out. He takes a delight in his own perversity. And he's also just wildly funny. Yeah, he's perfect as, as Lord Henry and the kind of the epitome of that, the dry wit and the, the kind of blase attitude towards life and other human beings. <laughs> you know, it's a bit of a morality tale, but at the same time, it does kind of extol the virtues of vice in, in, in a big way over the course of the film, which I, you know, would not have uh, been permissible uh, in, in most Hollywood films at this time. Yeah, no, it's it's a really special film. I really enjoyed it. I will not be forgetting the the statuary in this this space that he's in uh, anytime soon and the way the camera picks up and places that cat in so many in the frame in so many shots, you know? And weirdly, here's a you know, Herd Hatfield didn't have much of a career after this, but he kept working. He's even on three episodes of Murder She Wrote, reuniting him with uh, Angela Lansbury uh, in in the late 1980s. His his last uh, project was in 1991, but he did a lot of TV work and a lot of sort of minor roles. He did not become a star, but weirdly enough, I'm in the same movie as Herd Hatfield's. I was an extra in her alibi, the Tom Selleck, Paulina Porozkova. Uh, crime drama comedy and i just happened to be uh walking down the street in baltimore and they were looking for extras ah. so they just herded me into a, a group uh, outside of the courthouse for about half an hour or so while i grabbed this shot mm. of them coming out of a courthouse i don't even know if it's in the film i haven't actually watched the darn thing but uh 
<laughs> so that feels like a future episode of Lens Me Your Ears, Steve. I think so. I guess I'll have to watch her alibi to see mm-hmm. if I actually appear in a crowd scene. But but yeah. yeah, they were just kind of corralling people and saying it was in Baltimore, so I guess maybe you know it doesn't have the the infrastructure for getting extras for crowd scenes that uh, it does elsewhere. And they were just, I guess it was just a couple of PAs went out into the street and grabbed people. Mm. And I was like, well, you know, I'm just wandering around Baltimore. Sure. I'll be in a movie. And, uh, but I, 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 until just now, I just realized that Hurt as has a, as a part in the film. I did not see him. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but uh, or his portrait for that right matter. right well let's let's talk about bed knobs yes. and broomsticks another film that's important to your in your childhood Stephen. i missed it entirely in mine though i did it's a disney film from 1971 and and i guess it was uh compared unfavorably to mary poppins but i don't know i found it quite charming in its own own way it's uh, directed by robert stevenson uh loosely based on books the Magic Bedknob or How to Become a Witch in Ten Easy Lessons and Bonfires and Broomsticks by English children's author Mary Norton. So it's set in August 1940. Kids evacuate from from London to, uh, you know, a, a quaint seaside town. And these three Cockney siblings uh, are there and they they stay at Miss Eglantine's Price's house. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right it's not they don't say it much in the film eglantine eglantine anyway (laughs) she's a strange witchy lady obviously played by angela lansbury vegetarianism is the way with her a lot of stewed nettles Uh, but turns out she's an apprentice witch just not a very good one she makes friends with the kids and but the stakes are high because miss price wants to use her gifts to help the war effort but she hasn't completed all her training she needs a certain spell so that's the reason that you know they that's the driving force is her trying to get the right kind of spell and then uh you know about 30 minutes in miss price starts singing and all of a sudden this is a musical it takes a while to get there it does it's Uh, it's an odd film yeah and then and then about halfway in we uh we we take a a left turn into animation there's a whole midsection where they're on an island and uh and this is this is what uh, the, the island of Nambu, like <laughs> Nambupu, that Nambubutu. Anyway, Nambu- that, yeah, it's a it's an odd uh, odd fantasy place full of Disney-ish as animated characters, and uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a fun little movie. It's obviously there's some class consciousness going on here. You know, it's also about falsehoods and pulling the wool over people's eyes. It's about show business and faking it till you make it in some capacity. And I really enjoyed the song about Portobello Road and how they sell every kind of fake that you can imagine. It's all just part of the joy of it. Yeah, and it's uh, the the dance numbers where you have like the the East Indian soldiers and dancing to a raga and that kind of thing. I, I found that all uh, very charming and 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 kind of interesting and kind of progressive for the for the time. Well, provided they aren't in blackface, which I'm not hundred percent sure that they aren't. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I wasn't. Maybe I wasn't looking close enough. I was watching the dance moves. So uh, the sitar sounded good. Mm-hmm. Anyway. There we go. Now I'll have to go and have another look and <laughs> I'm incriminate sorry if myself. I spoiled your, your child. No, 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 no. That's Steven. entirely justified. But <laughs> but it was an interesting cultural inclusion nonetheless. So yeah, for sure. The film was a little troubled. Uh, apparently, uh, Angela Lansbury didn't really enjoy the experience quite so much you know, because of the special effects and uh, everything had to be storyboarded. And, and of course, there's a lot of stuff involving like, even wire work and, and dealing with things that were being animated and blue screen and all this. And uh, she felt that it, it she had to kind of do it by the numbers and not didn't give her a chance to kind of stretch out and and do her own thing and then but is you know that's the nature of disney especially this time they were really trying to like up the ante for mary poppins with this film in terms of you know humans and animation in the same frame and 
animated objects moving around with uh, actors, you know, wearing blue screen things. And, and for the most part, it's really well done. Uh, they, they, they really improved on the quality of the special effects since Mary Poppins. And unfortunately, the story's a bit unwieldy and they spend a lot of time, you know, in the animated sequence uh, where they're underwater in the lagoon there's a dance contest and then they go up on the island and there's a soccer game and and it you know it would have been nicer if maybe those two animated sequences could have been spaced out uh, through the film but i guess you know, there's only one trip to Nambutu in the storyline so so it's 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 I, what i found delightful as a kid because it's all of a sudden it switched to a cartoon i thought that was great as an adult it kind of stops the movie did in its tracks but the animation quality is great and the voice work is great and the character character design is is, is fantastic because the, the the animation studio was still pretty much at the height of its powers at this point although i do notice a lot of repeating of segments during the soccer game but at the same time it's 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 still really well done i actually had a bed knobs and broomsticks tea towel uh as a kid that had all the animated characters on it the lion and the secretary bird and and the rhino and so on so but you know obviously it made a big impression and that's the thing that kind of stuck with me that and my my bed knobs and broomsticks book and record and even if angela lansbury didn't have a great time she she still comes across as being very a very engaging character she's a very intelligent woman um you know she's she's not scatterbrained but but obviously you know coping with the fact that she has some magical ability and trying to trying to deal with that by using these you know, half-baked spells is kind of the charm of the film. And she and David Tomlinson, who was the father on Mary Poppins, he here he plays the, the shyster who's selling her the magic lessons. He's very charming as a character, and, and I like the way they wrote him. He's not like a complete con artist or a coward or whatever. He's actually he's actually quite brave and, and you know, is is up for whatever adventure that uh, that that she wants to take him on. I like that that uh, aspect of it. Yeah, though they do try to shoehorn a little bit of romance or suggested romance between him and and Lansbury, who, you know, throughout her career was playing characters who I think were older than she yes. was at the time. Uh, she was probably like 45 when she made this. And it just that doesn't work for me at all. It's just like there's there's nothing between these <laughs> two people. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's at one point there's ghostly suits of armor marching along. And that's surprisingly, perhaps unintentionally creepy because uh, it's all played sort of for laughs. But, boy, that 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 jumped out at me. Yeah, I have visions of like Army of Darkness with Bruce Campbell. <laughs> yeah. When that's all, yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's talk about one other movie that's sadly been uh, pretty much ignored from her catalog of work, but it is terrific. And that's something for everyone from 1971, directed by Hal Prince. Um, with Hugh Wheeler adapting a screenplay from a novel called The Cook, written by Henry Cressing. And I was so pleased that we had a chance to watch this. Uh, you were able to find it on a DVD. Uh, Michael York. Kino Lorber put it Kino, out on Blu-ray. So. Well, there you go. Um, uh, Kino, yeah, so uh, Michael York plays Conrad Ludwig. He's a young and dashing man from the German countryside with a fascination with the aristocratic classes. He first takes an interest in the daughter of an eccentric but very wealthy couple who are traveling around the countryside, the Pleschkis, and then uh, through through deeply underhanded means, he finds a way into the employ of Countess Ornstein, played by Angela Lansbury. Now, she's great in this, talking about the last of a dying breed of wealthy Germans, a descendant of Attila the Hun. And she has this amazing monologue about how her family have lost all their incredible homes around Europe. This is takes place reasonably contemporary with the movie, I guess, like they're talking about 20 years after the war. Yeah, it's about 10. It's, it's the movie set in, I think, 59, and the movie came out in 1970. So. Okay, there you go. Um, but yeah, so the family owns this impressive castle, but it sits empty because the countess can't afford to keep it open. 
Uh, but the Countess has Conrad's number. She calls him shameless, outrageous, and utterly immoral. And he does have a plan to connect the Pleschke's daughter and Ornstein's gay son to marry them, thereby using the new money to reopen the castle and return some measure of prestige to the family. Uh, and the Countess recognizes this, you know, that her name and her title are barely worth anything anymore. And all that matters these days is money. Uh, and so that's what it's really about. It's about this very manipulative, you know, man, young man, and, and the way he plays everyone around him. And it's, it's wildly, it's very dark. It's a dark comedy, but it's also wildly funny. Oh, yeah. And it just gets better as it goes along. It kind of steamrolls and, and builds up, um, you know, mystique and, and the characters become a little more um, uh, better defined as it goes along. And, and as things are discovered and the, the character interactions become more complicated, it just it's one of those things that just really uh, gets better as it gets going. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I, you know, I just saw it on Trailers from Hell uh, on the website there, which is kind of where I thought of uh, tracking down a copy for, for this show in particular. And I'm really glad I did. I think it'll be fun to rewatch. It's uh you know, the, the castle, of course, is uh, that uh, Bavarian castle, uh, uh, Neuschwanstein, uh, which is a very famous sort of s the Sleeping Beauty or the Cinderella castle, whatever you want to call it, has this kind of fairy tale look to it. And, and here it's always being seen in the background of shots or off in the distance. Sometimes I wonder if it's included as a matte painting because it always seems predominant in the shots and and they're always talking about it. But uh, it, it, it is really a great chance for Angela Lansbury to to play a, a character with some claws to it and has has a lot of bite and and it was a real delight to see her in in this part uh you know was, I'm, I'm sure it was a, a big change from uh, bed knobs and broomsticks for other people yeah and you mentioned hal prince directed this yes. and he hasn't not directed of course he's best known for theater am i right yeah he only made two theatrical features uh the other one was a an adaptation of sondheim's a little night music with uh i think elizabeth taylor and diana rigg which i remember playing in theater it played at Penhorn Mall Cinema of all places when I was a kid, but I didn't, didn't get to see it then. Uh, and uh, those are his only two sort of feature films. He did work on uh, West Side Story in some capacity because he had been involved with the original stage production. But he also did um, a filmed for TV uh, version of Sweeney Todd with Angela Lansbury uh, as, uh, as the pie maker. And I think George Hearn as uh, Sweeney the barber after uh, Canadian actor Len Carew, I think was the first actor to play that role. But for the video version, they got George Hearn and he's very good in it. And Angela Lansbury is fantastic. If you get a chance to see the filmed or the videotaped uh, stage production of Sweeney Todd with Angela Lansbury, it's a real treat. Yeah, and this one is too. This is hard to find. Something for everyone, but I really would suggest people seek it out if they can. Um, now, we mentioned, of course, um, that uh, her maybe best uh, or most adored or most impressive uh, work might have been in the Manchurian Candidate back, back in 1962. We also should give a nod to The Company of Wolves from 1985, where she is directed by Neil Jordan. It's this very strange sort of fever dream fairy tale fairy tale movie about werewolves and uh and it plays into all of the the big uh the the the, the fairy tales of you know of grim and little red riding hood and maybe a little bit of alice in wonderland with enormous toadstools but it's shot in this very weird mtv friendly 80s design uh it it looks a little dated accordingly but it's also quite a special film and she plays the grandmother in it who basically warns her granddaughter you can't trust anyone least of all a priest he's not called father <laughs> for nothing 
Yes, don't stray off the path. That's right. Yeah, they, by by, I don't know why it took so long to combine Little Red Riding Hood and a werewolf uh, myths, but uh, but there we go. This film does it uh, in in a, in a fun and outlandish kind of way. And and uh, there's a scene with Angela Lansbury where she confronts the wolf, which uh, is unforgettable. And uh, I got to see it uh, first in the theater. Wormwoods uh, showed it way back when, but uh, but I, I think it still holds up. I haven't seen it. Uh, I haven't seen quite as recently as you have, but I remember it being a lot of fun and having a lot of fun ideas about fairy tales and horror tales and the the kind of linked heritage between them. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lindsay Rears in our third and final segment. And after we paid tribute to the talent and career of the late Angela Lansbury, we're going to turn our attention in our final segment to comic great Robbie Coltrane, a truly fine uh, comic actor and character actor who uh, we lost all too soon. And I, I was a big fan for, for a number of years, uh, way before he started playing Hagrid in the Harry Potter movies, or Zukovsky, the uh, shady Russian arms dealer in uh, two of the Pierce Brosnan 007 James Bond movies. And uh, he came out of a very vibrant uh, period in British comedy uh, as part of the comic strip, I think is where he first came to public attention. He'd had some minor roles in a couple of films here and there. But the, the comic strip uh, ensemble, which did live uh, live comic sketch work on stage, but also uh, had a TV series on uh, Channel 4 uh, with the likes of uh, French and Saunders and uh, the, the the team from The Young Ones, Adrian Edmondson and Rick Mayle, N- Nigel Planer, uh, and uh, also Alexi Sale was involved uh, with them. Uh, just a, some of the greatest uh, comedic talents that we still have around today. And and he was a valuable part of that ensemble. Uh, I have an eight DVD set of the comic strip presents of their, uh, their TV series. And uh, they're mostly a series of half hour standalone um, comedy uh, sort of sort of sketches turned into half hour comedy uh, films short comedy films and, and they're they're for the most part pretty brilliant some of them are, are obvious parodies like where they make fun of the Enid Blyton kind of famous five um, teen mystery you know solvers uh, those novels of, of these teens are somehow able to solve all these crimes without ever getting hurt or threatened by criminals uh, which is pretty remarkable they kind of take those on in, in a handful of shows um, there was a kind of a pre-spinal tap um, version of a of a terrible heavy rock band called bad news uh, that, they made a film about that which they, yeah they, they, there was a spin that off they did there was like the original special and then they made a I think heavy bad news on tour I think it was and there may have been another one where they have a reunion I'm not sure but but um, and Coltrane uh, didn't often star in these but he often had a, a great supporting role he had a, a, a certainly a blustery manner and a and a, and a bold screen presence uh, where he could play these kind of uh, ludicrous over the top kind of characters and kind of get away with it. And, uh, and he was, he was a pleasure to watch in those. And then, and then he started popping up in some great character roles in feature films. He's, he's a terrific Falstaff and Henry Brana's Henry the fifth. Um, 
And, uh, you know, off the top of my head, I can't think of a lot of other ones, but, uh, but he's not a, the kind of actor who got a lot of lead roles. Uh, and, uh, we managed to find a couple of films in which he does play a lead character and, uh, and he's great in them. The films are a mixed bag. We'll, we'll, we'll have to be honest about that, but, but it was, it was great to see him make the most of these films. And, and mostly when you watch them, you just wish they had more of him in them. Yeah. And, uh, and that's certainly the case for these two films, uh, perfectly normal, which is, uh, uh, a very odd Canadian UK co-production and the, uh, the British shot comedy with Eric Idle, uh, nuns on the run. Yeah, for sure. I, the first time I saw, I think, um, uh, Robbie Coltrane was probably as Samuel Johnson in the third season of Blackadder, another gr- classic British comedy. Um, but, uh, I do remember him also, again, playing a supporting role in Mona Lisa from 1986, where he played Bob Hoskins' best pal as an artist who made weird plastic sculptures that looked like plates of spaghetti. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, he had a terrific career. And we should actually also nod to Brothers Bloom, which is another Ryan Johnson film from 2009. And and he plays a great part in that, too. Anyway, but yes, we did watch two full of features of his. Uh, Let's start talking about Nuns on the Run from 19 they're both from 1990 just coincidentally it's written and directed by jonathan lynn who is the filmmaker behind clue and my cousin Vinny and the whole nine yards and something more recently wild target as well as yes minister on television and this is a handmade films production george harrison's shingle which made a lot of quality pictures in the 80s and 90s including time bandits and mona lisa which i mentioned and withnell and i and there's a scrappy low budget quality to this production which i think owes a debt maybe to the sort of carry on series those are broad ribald 60s comedies yeah Yeah, uh, lots of cross-dressing and slapstick so we have eric idol as brian and robbie coltrane as charlie they're two bank robbing buddies who work for a a much more unpleasant gangster one who will kill them if they ever want it out of the business which they do and the gangsters territory is being invaded by another group of gangsters at triads and they're planning on stealing a bunch of the cash from the triads but then brian and charlie take the money from them and run and from their boss so they're basically being chased by two groups of gangsters uh and they have to think fast so they hide in a convent and dress and they find nuns clothes and habits and they dress in them and they pretend to be nuns as they hide out which feels like a long time but i guess it's only a day or so that they're actually in this this pretending to be nuns yeah it does uh, have a weird compressed feel to it in yeah of uh, the the way the story unfolds and of course you know they're interacting with other nuns including a priest and these 18 to 22 year old trainee nuns including in the showers until they can escape from brazil with their cash and i mean you know Okay, so the the scene in the shower is probably that humor probably hasn't aged terribly well, uh, for instance. But there is some some fun to be had in this movie. I mean, Brian has fallen for a young, somewhat my, myopic woman named Faith, played by Camille Kudri, uh, Kuduri, excuse me, uh, and you know. Some of that is is ridiculous. The fact that she's kind of like a um, Mr. Magoo kind of character as she bumps into signs, but there, it, all of this is so outrageous, so bloody good natured that I couldn't help but enjoy you know much of it. Yeah, I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. I do remember when it opened to uh, I remember it was playing at the Empire Theater Sixplex in Bedford, and maybe that was the only place it played. Uh, but it was it was not terribly well received at the time, and. It, I don't know if it was because it felt a little out of step or out of date at the time that it came out. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I watching it now, I see what they're going for that, like you say, like some of that carry on cheekiness, um, some of that 
Ealing um, flavor of, of sort of the uh, the ribald character comedy, maybe some, like some of those Alec Guinness uh, films from the from the nineteen fifties. The man in the white suit comes to mind, uh, where he's, he invents the the perfect fabric, and of course everyone is out to get him because that would destroy the fabric in the textile industries. And it, it does have that kind of feel to it. I don't know the, how much I like Eric Idle as a lead performer. I, I find uh, Eric Idle, as much as I love P- Monty Python, uh, I feel like he's uh, uh, an actor who's better in small doses rather than trying to carry a film. So I kind of wonder how it might have been if if maybe it had, had Robbie Coltrane and maybe another actor from that comic strip, uh, you know, like a Rick Mail or, or an Adrian Edmondson or somebody like some, somebody like that. Uh, there, there, there isn't like a lot of comic uh, chemistry between the two of them, I felt like, but, uh, but, but Coltrane is, it, you know, has a lot of, a lot of gusto and, 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 and idols fine. Uh, but I, I feel like, uh, you know, carrying a film like this isn't really his forte and, and, and the, the, the machinations are fun enough in that kind of caper crime comedy sort of way. So, um, you know, it's funny that the shower scene that, that pops up is otherwise it's a perfectly family friendly comedy. There isn't uh, I mean, there's some, some gunplay, but there's no real violence and, and the, I don't recall a ton of, uh, swearing in the film. So that, I don't know if they're just trying to appeal to the Porky's crowd or what, but if you excise that particular scene, you could watch it with, with anybody, but, um, yeah, it's an odd one, I guess. And in, 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 especially in our more prudish times now to yeah. see just sudden, like completely unjustified nudity. Yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't, there's no real reason for it. Though. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, we should also talk about perfectly normal, which you mentioned, Stephen, also from 1990, uh, available to be watched on Tubi right now. Uh, it's a Canadian film directed by Eve Simoneau, written by Eugene Lipinski and Paul Corrington, who is a author, Canadian author, whose name might be familiar. Yeah, whale, whale music was. Yeah. His uh, turned into a film from his novel. Yeah. So I remember the poster image from this film staring back at me from video store racks going back to the 1990s with Coltrane and some other actor dressed up in togas looking like they were ready to party. Now watching it finally after so many years, I see it's a bit of a mess. It has some genuine ideas in the direction, some fun performances, especially Coltrane. Again, once again, he is, as he frequently is, one of the best things in the movie. Uh, but it has what I'd call maybe some fatal flaws. Uh, it's about as Canadian as Strange Brew, though, which it shares some really strange parallels. And that it could be of some interest to some some listeners. Um, it's about a guy named Lorenzo Paracchi, played by Michael Riley, who everyone just called Renzo. He's a quiet, introverted fellow. He's trying to save money to build a house out in the countryside where he can have a dog. He has some pretty modest, you know, ambitions. <laughs> He's got his little square marked out on the ground. That's right. Build his house. Uh, his mother has just <laughs> passed away, leaving him alone in their apartment. His day job is at a beer bottling factory. At night, he drives a taxi, he loves opera, sings in the shower, and he plays goal for the factory hockey team, which isn't very good. Um, and there is a, a woman at the who works at the rink who has the hots for him. And he's got what some would say is quite a full life, but his hockey coach and foreman at work, the late, great Kenneth Welsh, calls him dull repeatedly. And unfortunately, he's not wrong. One of the problems with the film is that the lead character has no genuine conflict. He's very little charm. I I, I hate to point at an actor in this case. I think it might be more the writing. He's just not a very interesting character, and there's no amounts of close-ups or dollying camera work can change that. Uh, And the film really leans into whimsy with a lot of opera 
on the soundtrack, scoring shots of beer bottles in the production line with hard cuts to the hockey rink. Um, but Coltrane, when he shows up, he gets the lion's share of good lines. He plays Alonzo Lafayette Turner, who's a born grifter with a dream to open an Italian restaurant where all the servers are dressed as characters out of operas. And he meets <laughs> Renzo in the cab and then kind of ingratiates himself into his life. So the Italian immigrant subtext is very much text here. I mean, this could be this could be big night. I mean, it's got that kind of content here. Pizza plays a big part of the story and the key relationship between Renzo and Alonzo and Italian food. It's all weird, but I guess it's just not really explored as it's something that's really unique or interesting. It's all a bit insular uh, until the moment where the hockey team gets into a fistfight at the restaurant very late in the running. Um, I guess this is a movie I'd recommend to Coltrane fans, but, you know, go watch Mona Lisa or the Brothers Bloom first or even the even the nuns on the run. Um, but but for for Canadian cinema completists, I think there's something here. Yeah, it's it's so scattershot. Uh, I remember liking it well enough at the time that it came out, but uh, it right now it just seems like a, a kind of a mess. There's the the hockey, the hockey stuff only seems to really exist so that there can be a fight at the restaurant into the movie. And I just wish there was maybe less of something and more focus on the restaurant. The restaurant's really interesting. We don't really get to that until the last quarter of the film or thereabouts. And I thought, well, that part of the storyline in itself is interesting enough, you know, but we spend so much time at the beer plant and then, and then, uh, driving around in the taxi and then at the hockey rink. And, and they all seem oddly disconnected from each other. There isn't enough of, of, of a flow line through them that, that maybe that it should have scaled back, focused more on the characters and, uh, and more on the opera restaurant, which was kind of an interesting, uh, could, you know, we don't know who any of the characters who work there are. We don't know, you know, how, how that all comes together. And, and, uh, it just feels kind of tacked on at the end, even though it is his primary dream, uh, through the course of the film, it just kind of happens, it seems. And, uh, yeah, it, uh, it feels like there should have been another pass at the screenplay before they started cameras rolling. But, um, you know, it's one of those kind of early international co-productions where you had a, some British, uh, money and some Canadian money and a smattering of American money. Um, coming together, uh, and, uh, feels like different forces are kind of pulling at this movie along the way, but, but Col yeah. Coltrane is great in it. Like he, he's certainly the reason to watch if he wasn't in it. Uh, I wouldn't, uh, be able to recommend this hardly at all, but anytime he's on screen and he just has this kind of gung ho energy, um, playing, you know, playing this con artist, Alonzo con artist with a heart, uh, cause, cause he really does want this restaurant to open, uh, and, and be successful. Uh, he's just kind of pulling a kind of a scheme to, to, to kind of make that happen. Uh, and he's great, you know, uh, and he's got, he's got this, uh, you know, Renzo character who's just kind of not reacting to much at all. And it just feels like a weird uh, mismatched energy there. Well, that's it for this edition of Lens Me Your Ears. I hope you enjoyed this look at the careers of the late, great Angela Lansbury and Robbie Coltrane. Hopefully you'll investigate uh, their, their previous work, uh, either the films we talked about or maybe look into some of the things we didn't talk about on this show. There's there's a lot of great uh, films and in Coltrane shows, some great television uh, to explore. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook, and you can find me online at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. 
My name's Karsten Knox, and I have a, a blog called Flaw in the Iris, and that's the name of my Twitter handle as well. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at Lens Me Your Ears and on Facebook. We have a Facebook group where you can leave comments and, and uh, share some ideas for shows, perhaps. And uh, hopefully, we'll uh, see you at another show down the road two weeks from now. Hope you like this one, and we'll talk to you soon. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.